As the morning broke and the late spring fog began to lift, a band of northerners stood in a line, looking nervous but menacing at the ready to defend their territory. Whiskey bottles were passed around and men slapped each other on the back. To the Union, they toasted, gulping down the hot liquor that gave them the courage to be excited for what was to come. There was a dull roar in the distance which got louder till the Northerners could see their enemy approaching just over the horizon. An army from the south was bearing down, moving quickly, taunting their northern foes and announcing their arrival. Yahoo! Go get them, boys! Let's do it for Dixie! These southern men had traveled hundreds of miles and they were tired and dirty, many of them footsore. But finally, the great contest was set to commence. The battleground this day was not Antietam or Sharpsburg or Gettysburg or any of the Civil War sites that would soon be drenched in American blood. It was May of 1845, so that Civil War was still more than a decade in the future. The battleground today was the Long Island Union Racetrack. And the battle that these men had come to witness was a match race between two horses, one from the north and one from the south. The hopes of the North were invested in a horse named Fashion, a, a lightning-quick, undefeated New Jersey-bred mare that Northerners boastfully called the Queen of the Turf. Racing for the South was Paytona, a chestnut mare from Alabama. She was younger and less experienced than Fashion, but down in the South, they boasted that she possessed the speed and the fire to vanquish her Northern foe. What was the first great, truly national sporting event in American history? It was this horse race, right here, Fashion Against Paytona, at the Long Island Union Racetrack in 1845. And the reason that so many Americans cared is that this race tapped into the brewing hostilities between North and South, hostilities over the future of slavery in the young nation. Until actual Civil War came, the, this racetrack was the only tangible place where Northerners and Southerners could express their differences and compete on the field of battle. This was a Civil War before the Civil War. And this 1845 horse race was the moment that spectator sports became an American obsession. When Fashion and Paytona trotted up to their starting line, it was the slave states versus the free states, the agricultural economy versus an industrializing one, South versus North, or, or the way both sides saw it, it was us versus them. It's ironic then, it, it was arguments over slavery that were beginning to tear the nation apart. But it was these same arguments that brought North and South together on this day in 1845 and created our American sports culture. This is American Sport, and I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. I am willing to bet that as long as human beings have ridden horses, there have been horse races, and probably people betting on those horse races. Horse races have been at the center of the sports culture of many civilizations. Think of the chariot races in ancient Greece. Chariot racing was actually the most popular event at the ancient Olympic Games. 
Or think of ancient Rome. You know, go watch the movie Ben-Hur and you'll get a sense of the mad spectacle at the Roman Colosseum, where spectators pack the stands to revel in the speed of the competitors. Where else could you see something moving that fast? Maybe you're familiar with Il Palio, the great horse race in Siena, Italy. It was first run in the 14th century, and it still happens twice a year, every summer. Different neighborhoods in Siena, they are represented at this race, and they race their horses in the name of neighborhood pride. Attending the Palio in Siena and then running with the bulls during the Feast of St. Fermin in nearby Pamplona, Spain, these are both on my sports tourism bucket list. By the 17th century, horse racing had become very popular with the aristocrats and the royalty of British society. So closely linked was horse racing with the British monarchy, it was known as the sport of kings. All this is to say that along with the simple foot race, horse racing is one of the most ancient and enduring and consistent of sports. Its basic premise to identify which of two or more horses is the fastest over a set distance. This premise has been unchanged for centuries. But what's too easy to lose sight of today is how impressive horses were in an earlier age. Get close to a horse today and you will marvel at its size, its its musculature. But think how unprecedented their speed and their power was in an earlier era. We inhabit a world with trains, planes, and automobiles, not to mention rockets that soar into the heavens. But before the invention of these things, horses were the fastest things alive, or the fastest thing that man could ride. Before the heyday of these modern modes of transportation, if human beings wanted to go fast, if one wanted to go from point A to point B quickly, or if he or she just had a need for speed, That human being was on horseback. Horses were the trains, the the Formula One race cars, and the booster rockets of the pre-industrial world. And they were status symbols. Horses were not just fast and efficient means of transportation. They were signs of wealth and prestige and, and, and really power. Not only were horses expensive, but swift, strong horses were valued by rulers for the military prowess they conferred. You know, when it came to battle, the the side with the best horses, the side with the most horses, this was the side with the advantage. So let me say it again, because this is really the essence of what I'm talking about today. The horse was a symbol of power. I mean, you've ever heard of horsepower? And the man with the fastest horse could lay claim, symbolically at least, to being the most powerful man of all. And this takes us to early horse racing in America. Archaeologists have found evidence of horses in the Americas from as far back as 8,000 years ago. But these indigenous horses went extinct. And then it was Europeans who reintroduced horses to the Americas when they brought their horses with them to the New World. Spanish conquistadors, they used their horses to conquer large areas of territory. The steel swords and the diseases they brought with them were significant as well. European settlers in the 1600s, they brought their horses with them. And imagine the task of loading a horse on a small wooden ship and keeping it alive on the perilous journey across the Atlantic Ocean in the 1600s. 
But horses were back in the land soon to be known as the United States by the mid-1600s. And in fact, in 1665, a race course was opened on Long Island in the colony of New York. And the American horse racing obsession began. But it's in the southern colonies, in places like Virginia and Maryland, where horse racing really took off. Horse racing was the most beloved pastime of wealthy Southerners, a a group of large landowners known as the gentry. Men who had left Europe and were seeking to make their fortune doing things like growing tobacco, a crop that more and more was being tended to and processed by enslaved labor. Human beings that had been captured and were being brought to North America from Africa. These enslaved people did many things, including taking care of the gentry's horses. This southern gentry class was fond of what's known as quarter horse racing. Quarter horse racing refers to short sprints that were a quarter mile in length. And the reason that the quarter mile became the standard horse racing length is that it was hard to find or clear a swath of land more than a quarter mile long. Many colonial southern towns had a quarter-mile thoroughfare named Race Street. This is where those quarter-horse races happened. Quarter-horses were big, powerful sprinters, and in order to better breed quarter-horses, any horse that did not stand at least 13 hands tall by its second year would be gelded, or castrated, so it could not pass on its shortness to future generations. Horses are measured in hands because they didn't have standard measuring tools in ancient societies, so they literally use the human hand to measure horses. This tradition continues to the present. One hand is considered four inches, so a 13-hand horse is 52 inches tall. That's measured from the ground to the top of the back, like where you would put your saddle. American quarter horse racing was a spectacle. Quarter horse races were highly developed social rituals with rules. The southern gentry, they they used horse races to distinguish themselves from others, from the commoners, and also to demonstrate their masculinity to one another. You know, first of all, only the wealthy owned horses. So just being able to race one's horse was itself a display and a statement of great wealth. In colonial Virginia, horses were so rare and so expensive that the punishment for stealing a horse was execution. At these races, there are legendary tales of the gentry drinking prodigious amounts of alcohol and wagering small fortunes on the outcome. To win a wager was to instantly have one's own intelligence validated. But just to place a bet, to to lay down a bunch of money and take a wild chance— This was seen as a mark of masculinity itself. And at these races, the gentry stood alone. They segregated themselves from the commoners who came to watch the race. They kept to themselves as a way to make claims about their superior status. This is actually a practice repeated today at American racetracks like Churchill Downs, home of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, up in the grandstands sit the wealthy in their suits and sundresses and gaudy hats. But down in the infield, it's just a bunch of regular folks slurping Jim Beam and barfing all over each other. I recommend the experience. Let's talk horse racing and politics. 
The popularity of horse racing suffered during the American Revolution. Racing and wagering on races was suddenly suspect, and that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, sports were just seen as frivolous and, and wasteful during a time of war, a, a war for American independence. But it was more than this. Sports were also associated with the British. Most early American sports, like horse racing, came to the New World from England. And all things British were disparaged during the American Revolution. American patriots were told to avoid British tea, British cloth, and playing British sports. On the eve of the Revolution, as, as tensions were heating up between the American colonies and Mother England, the first Continental Congress, which in many ways was the first United States government, they issued a declaration and they ordered Americans to avoid every species of extravagance and dissipation, especially all horse racing, gaming, and other expensive diversions and amusements. No horse racing. In the context of the American Revolution, Horse racing, which again was known back in England as the sport of kings, horse racing was suddenly un-American. How can you celebrate the sport of kings while at war with the king? Now, despite these suspicions, I should mention that horse racing was very popular among many of the so-called founding fathers, the political elite of the revolutionary era. The papers of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, perhaps you've heard of these guys, their papers contain multiple references to bets won and lost at local horse races. These guys were gamblers who loved to play the ponies. And this makes sense. Horse racing was very popular among the Southern slaveholding class, and both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were wealthy, large-scale Southern slaveholders. The early president with the closest links to horse racing was Andrew Jackson, the, the nation's seventh president. Jackson loved horse racing. He, he owned, raced, and bet heavily on his own horses. He also killed another man because of a horse. Andrew Jackson fought many duels in his life. And in the most famous of these duels, he shot and killed a man in Tennessee named Charles Dickinson. Their disagreement involved many accusations and denials. There were insults and name-calling, and Dickinson said some terrible things about Andrew Jackson's wife. But their argument originated over a disputed horse racing wager. I'm not big into guns, but I cannot think of a better reason to fire a weapon at another man than to punish him for welching on a bet. After the revolution was over, Americans celebrated the role that their horses had played in gaining national independence. There was the Narragansett mare named Brown Beauty. This was the horse that Paul Revere borrowed for his famous midnight ride to warn the American patriots that the British are coming. There were the cavalry horses that American soldiers rode during the war that drove the Redcoats to distraction. Horses were celebrated soldiers of American independence which makes it all the more interesting that the most important horse in American horse racing history was actually an English horse, an English import named Diomed. Diomed was an over-the-hill chestnut that arrived in Virginia from England in 1799. 
and Diomed, named after the Greek hero Diomedes. Diomed had been a star of the English horse racing scene. As a young horse, he routed the field in every race he was entered. But then his owner took him out of racing action to give him some much-needed rest. And when Diomed returned to the track, his tremendous speed had mysteriously vanished. Just like that, Diomed was a has-been. His owner feared him worthless. But he was about to receive an offer. Across the Atlantic, a couple of Virginia horsemen, they were looking to make a splash in the American horse racing scene, and all they knew of Diomed was of his fame and his past victories. And so Diomed's English owner was gleeful when these foolish Americans offered him $5,000 for his washed-up horse. Diomed was put on a boat and sent to the New World. And then the darndest thing happened. Diomed arrived in America and refound his speed. No one knows for sure what happened. Uh, maybe the healthy sea air had revived him as he journeyed west. Some think it was the different type of feed he was given in Virginia. Whatever the reason, Diomed started running fast and winning races. And Americans, they saw themselves in Diomed. Their descendants had also been the rejects of England and Europe, cast off to the New World because they supposedly had no worth. But in America, they had found themselves. In America, they had found their pace. They had been rejuvenated and harnessed their power. They were Diomed, and Diomed was them. Diomed was a brief sensation who helped to reignite American interest in horse racing after the war. But his legacy is much greater than that. Diomed was a stud. Meaning the horses that Diomed sired, they were fast as well. And almost all of the horses that were to run in the great north-south match races, they were almost all descendants of Diomed. That's one of the ironies of those races. Though men from the north and the south, they're going to boast that their horses are special, that they are representatives of the spirit of their particular part of the nation. These horses were all related. They all came from Diomed. Coming out of the American Revolution and into the early 19th century, Sports throughout these newly united states. Sports were small, unorganized, local affairs. There was a historian who was once trying to make sense of early America, and he described the nation as a series of hundreds of little islands, each one disconnected from the other. In early America, people rarely traveled from one island to the next. And so each island had its own traditions and and culture. There were different languages and religions. And the sports and games that they played in each were unique as well. What did Virginians know about the games and sports they played in New York? And what did New Yorkers know about what they played up in Massachusetts? But in the first half of the 19th century, this would start to change. As both sports and America itself became more interconnected, more modern. The key factor in the rise of modern sports in America is urbanization. In the United States in 1820, there were only 12 cities with a population of over 5,000. It's remarkable. 
By 1850, so 30 years later, there were over 150 cities with that many people. The United States, particularly up in the north, was on its way to becoming an urban, industrial nation. In these growing cities, you had a large number of people in a relatively small area. And these people were looking for leisure. They were looking for entertainment and, and excitement to compensate for the dreary loneliness of urban life. Both playing and watching sports linked people into a community, a, a smaller community within the larger impersonal urban environment. You know, you move from a Pennsylvania farm to New York City. You know nobody. You're an anonymous face in the crowd. So you join a rowing club or a baseball team, or you go to a horse race. All of these events linked strangers into a community of players and spectators. People were drawn to sports for the feeling of camaraderie and fellowship that they provided. Improvements in transportation were also vital to the rise of modern sports. In the early 19th century, it would be steamboats that carried horses, trainers, and spectators to racetracks in and out of the crowded city. And this is absolutely critical for our north-south horse races. If you have a horse in Alabama and you want to race it in New York, how are you going to get it there? Steamboats allowed for the easy transportation of horses. Fun fact. Perhaps not surprisingly, steamboat racing itself became a sport, though it was a terribly dangerous one, as boilers pushed to their maximum often exploded, killing passengers and crew alike. Okay, maybe that was a not-so-fun fact, but it is a fact. Changes in communication encouraged the American sports boom as well. The Telegraph allowed for race fans to learn of results almost instantaneously. It allowed for challenges to be made and accepted quickly. Details worked out instantly. Spurred by surging literacy rates in the 19th century, newspapers began to realize the value of printing sport information. To fulfill interest, there arose a new type of publication, the Specialized Sports Sheet. This was a, a sports-focused newspaper. The first sports sheet was called The Spirit of the Times. It began publishing in 1831, and though the paper covered many sports, its focus was horse racing. The Spirit of the Times helped transform horse racing from a local pastime into an organized national activity. The paper lobbied for standardized national rules for the sport. It, it promoted prominent races, and very importantly for gamblers, they were the ones who set and published betting odds on the races. It was because of all of these changes, the, the growth of cities, the ability of teams, athletes, and spectators to travel more easily from place to place, the publicity that newspapers provided. You know, horse racing had been in America for almost 200 years, but all these changes created the infrastructure or, or set the stage for horse racing to become truly national in scope. All that was needed was a reason for Americans to care, to, to really care about horse racing. And that's where slavery comes in. The development of a race-based slave labor system in early America has a million and one effects on the American past and an equal number of legacies on our present. 
And what I'm about to talk about right now, its effect on sports in America, this is not even close to the most profound effect that slavery had on our nation. But our modern fascination with sport is directly tied to the arguments that Americans were having over slavery in the antebellum or pre-Civil War era. Sports promoters, they learned that if they could match two horses and convince Americans that those horses represented the power of the North and the power of the South, Americans would pay handsomely to see those horses do battle. Okay, I need to provide a quick warning here. I am not always the best enunciator. I know, not good for somebody doing a podcast. I am trying very hard right now to hit all the syllables, but I know that enunciation is not my number one strong point. So I want to be very clear here. What I am going to talk about right now are the sectional tensions between North and South. Sectional tensions, not sexual tensions. So if you're listening to this in your car as you drive home, you know, please don't tell your honey that you just heard some guy on a podcast say that the Civil War was all about the sexual tensions of the era. True story. A few years ago, I received a final exam from a very bright student, and I read in horror as she told me that the Civil War was due to the sexual tensions in the United States. I think that was my fault, so don't let this happen to you. You've been warned. Right now, we are discussing the sectional tensions, tensions between North and South, tensions that led the United States to become, as Abraham Lincoln famously put it, a house divided. The tensions and the anxieties and the violence that would ultimately occur between North and South were about slavery. But the issue that led to the sectional tensions between North and South, it wasn't really the existence of slavery in the Southern states. The issue was slavery in the West. As the United States grew and as Western lands were turned into states, there was a question. Would those states have slavery? In the first half of the 19th century, there was a delicate balance between slave states in the South and the so-called free states in the North. It's actually very similar to the delicate balance in the Senate today between Democrats and Republicans, and neither side, then or now, wanted to be in the minority. Politicians, they, they use the language of horse racing to articulate their political grievances and anxieties. Thomas Jefferson once complained of the growing power of the anti-slavery North like this. We are completely under the saddle of Massachusetts and Connecticut. They ride us very hard, cruelly insulting our feelings as well as exhausting our strength. As the arguments over slavery increased in the 19th century, the editors of the Richmond Inquirer in Virginia, they warned of even giving an inch to the North if we yield now, they warned, beware, they will ride us forever. Neither side wanted to give in to the other. So whenever someone proposed that a territory be turned into a new state, say Missouri or Kansas or Nebraska or California, there were arguments, you know, vicious arguments over whether or not that new state would allow slavery. 
when United States senators were debating what to do with the territory seized in the Mexican-American War. Would slavery be allowed in those territories? The arguments were heated. Senators threatened each other. Men started carrying weapons into the Senate. It was said that the only man who did not carry a knife with him into Congress was the man who carried two knives and a gun. One senator from the North would get so worked up making his anti-slavery argument, he would do hundreds of push-ups in the congressional aisle to let off steam. Now, I'm trying to imagine Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders doing burpees behind their desks. The arguments, they got personal. They, they got violent. The Massachusetts senator, Charles Sumner, he gave a famous two-day anti-slavery speech in which he called pro-slavery Americans, quote, the drunken spew and vomit of the nation. And then he went after senators from the South. Sumner lambasted a senator from South Carolina named Andrew Butler, who was one of the louder pro-slavery voices in Congress. Sumner poked fun at Senator Butler's awkward false teeth. He, he called Butler a pimp. He pointed at Butler and said, you possess a shameful and ugly mistress, the whore slavery. If they had microphones back then, it would have been a mic drop moment. Sumner out. In response to Sumner's verbal attacks, a representative from South Carolina, a young congressman named Preston Brooks, he approached Sumner as he sat at his desk on the Senate floor. Now, if young Preston Brooks had considered Sumner to be a gentleman, he might have challenged him to a duel. But duels are for social equals. Now, Brooks believed that what Sumner deserved was a good old-fashioned horsewhipping. So for his attack, he chose a light cane, the type used to discipline unruly dogs. Brooks walked up to Sumner and said, You have insulted the honor of Senator Butler in the state of South Carolina. And then he began to beat Sumner with the cane. He beat Sumner unconscious on the Senate floor, lying in a pool of his own blood. In South Carolina, Brooks was a hero. South Carolinians sent him canes to replace the one he smashed over Sumner's head. Some were inscribed with the words, hit him again. This was no longer just about politics. This was no longer just about the political question of whether slavery should be allowed in the Western territories and states. This was about honor, Northern honor versus Southern honor. And it's in this environment that these intersectional horse races took place. They happened because the North and the South, they were itching for a fight. Maybe war's coming, maybe it's not, but let's duke it out right now on the track. So think how symbolic these races would have been. I mean, both sides flexing their muscles, rattling their sabers and threatening the other with disunion, rebellion, and war. In an age before tanks and airplanes, horses were the primary symbol of militarism. So whichever section, north or south, whichever section possessed the strongest and fastest horse, they were the ones who could make the claim of military supremacy. 
Southern sportsmen scoffed at the idea that a Northern horse could defeat one born and bred in the South. Raising fast horses was part of their aristocratic identity. It was their birthright. What did they know of horses in the North? And Southern notions about the inferiority of Northern racing were not totally unfounded. The number of racetracks in the North paled compared to what they had in the South. Horse racing and wagering on horses was illegal in most Northern states, but it was celebrated down in the South. In the South, it was said that a man left home for only three reasons, to worship at church, to appear in court, or to go to the races. If men in the North wanted to race their horses, they usually had to travel South, where they almost always met with defeat. But in the 1820s, there was a new air of optimism in the North. The North was being transformed. The opening of the Erie Canal was about to make New York City the undisputed center of American business and trading. And Northern men, they were boasting of their hard work and enterprise. What could the South boast of? A wealthy man in the South knows nothing of work, they said. All he knows how to do is mistreat those doing the work for him. The North, they said, the North was the future. We the North. The South, with its rural, slave-based economy, they were stuck in the past. Northern men began to boast that they had applied this energy and this enterprise to horse racing. They were ready to take on and defeat the South. Northern men like John Cox Stevens, who was an heir to a steamboat fortune and who liked to promote and wager on foot races and yacht races. But horse racing was his passion and he wanted to show Southerners that he was more than their equal. And so in 1823, the the first of the famed North-South match races occurred when Eclipse battled Henry. Eclipse was the Northern horse, Henry the pride of the South. Taking place in the shadow of arguments about slavery in the Missouri Territory, national interest was high. Andrew Jackson, he took time off from his presidential campaign to attend the race. John Cox Stevens was there as well, and he bet his fortune on Eclipse, the chestnut stallion from the North. According to one of his biographers, once Stevens had bet the contents of his purse, he next took his watch from his pocket and the diamond pin from his lapel and bet those on Eclipse as well. Stevens was rewarded for his faith, and Southerners were shocked when Eclipse routed Henry. The North had won. And then in the ultimate sign of the growing power of Northern capital, John Cox Stevens purchased both horses. He bought Eclipse for $10,000 and Henry for $3,000 and then put them both out for stud at his stables in Hoboken. Henry, once the hope of the South, was now living in New Jersey. Down in Dixie, they scoured the region for fast horses and, and brought them up north. But more times than not, it was the northern horse that was victorious. And then came our race in 1845. Fashion from the North versus Petona from the South for a then record $20,000 prize at Long Island's Union Racecourse. 
Fashion had already taken on some of the best horses that the South had to offer, and she had vanquished them all. Fashion was unbeaten, and Northerners were boasting that she was unbeatable. But the South had a young challenger in Petona, a horse that had originally been named Glumdalclitch, but thankfully had been renamed. Petona had dazzled in Nashville the year before, and so Southerners placed their hopes in her saddle. The youth of Petona would be important. Because long gone was the race of just a quarter mile, the the Fashion Paytona competition was what's known as a match race. Best of three races between two horses over the course of an afternoon. Each race, four miles in length and an astoundingly long distance by today's standards. By comparison, the Kentucky Derby is a mile and a quarter. Try to run a four-mile horse race today and you will be arrested for animal cruelty. By 1845, the argument over slavery was at fever pitch. And here was that argument crystallized. Here was that argument embodied by these majestic symbols of power. You could go to the racetrack and watch the argument. Around the nation, you could put your money where your mouth was and wager on the argument. The newspapers, they were filled with reports and projections. Everyone was discussing this north-south horse race. Across the country, in every man's mouth was the question, are you for fashion or Petona, the north or the south, the free states or the slave states? For the very first time, the whole nation came together with a shared interest in the outcome of a sporting event. It was the Kentucky Derby before the Kentucky Derby, the World Series before the World Series, the Super Bowl before the Super Bowl. It was the Civil War before the Civil War. What strikes me the most when reading the newspaper reports from race day is both how similar the whole thing sounds to a contemporary sporting event, but how different it sounds as well. New York City came to a halt on the day of the race. The the New York Stock Exchange shut down, and estimates ranged that as high as 100,000 spectators were either at or around the contest. Men and women, though it was mostly men, they traveled on steamboats and barges to get to the race course. They rode horses, some saddled, some pulling private buggies or omnibuses. You know, others who had stayed in nearby inns, they just walked to the track. The crowd was a scene unto itself. Men in bright, colorful jackets and black top hats. There were politicians, actors, newspaper editors, saloon keepers, self-described Southern gentlemen. There were Bowery boys and prize fighters, prostitutes and pickpockets. They had all come for what the newspapers were calling simply the Great Race. A massive traffic jam formed as they neared the course. That certainly sounds familiar. Outside the racetrack gates, vendors, they they set up makeshift booths and they were selling lemonade, they were selling beer. Tents were erected and betting desks, they took wagers while makeshift roulette tables did a very steady business. Some placed their race tickets up for a wager. Tickets cost an astronomical $10 for these races. It was price gouging, many complained. That also sounds familiar. 
Once inside the fenced area, there were no seats, no tiered bleachers. So spectators, they, they scrambled for views. Some risked life and limb to climb trees or to get on top of carriages in hopes of better being able to see the action. And just before each race, a young man on horseback, he rode the circumference of the track and whipped back the interlopers who had crowded too close to the turf. All the while, a race official pleaded with Northerners to treat their Southern guests with courtesy, and he assured Southerners that their horse would not be interfered with. A giant American flag flew high over the center of the track. And then the race itself, but what does it matter? I mean, who, who cares who actually won? I, I'm gonna tell you, of course, but the significance is all in the buildup. It's what this race symbolized to the nation that mattered. It's, it's the way the race was fueled by the passions over slavery that made this race what it was. Fashion, Petona, the, the horses, at this point, they were incidental. But they were there. And at half past two o'clock, a bugle sounded and Fashion and Petona, they took to the track. They stood side by side for a moment and then were each given a tap and they were off for race number one. Four times around the one mile race course, the crowd roared. It was Petona, the younger horse from the south that made the four laps the quickest, winning by two lengths in a time of seven minutes, 39 seconds. The horses took a 20-minute intermission while spectators, they refilled their glasses and recalibrated their odds. The handful of Southerners in the crowd, they, they had looked nervous before the first race, but now confident. They doubled their wagers. And then it was race number two, a must-win for the North. But four miles later, it was all over. Petona, with her longer stride, had won again. Seven minutes and 45 seconds. The South was victorious. Those Southerners in attendance, they threw their hats into the air and they hurrahed for Dixie. Telegraph lines transmitted the results to Richmond, Charleston, and Savannah, Nashville, and New Orleans, where men poured into the streets and fired their revolvers into the air. It was a show of jubilation throughout the South that would not be repeated until secession. The mood was much more somber in the North. We'll get them next time, Northerners said. The battle that the great match race presaged, of course, was the Civil War, a, a war in which 700,000 Americans died, the president was assassinated, and the Southern slave system was destroyed. The Southern states had seceded from the Union rather than risk Congress trying to limit their ability to own slaves. It was a colossal, bloody miscalculation but one that hastened the demise of the most wicked relationship in our nation's past, the, the relationship between master and slave. When the war was over, the South would rebuild itself, including its horse racing infrastructure. The South would soon regain its position as the region that produced the nation's top horses, the best jockeys. It would be the farms from the bluegrasses of Kentucky that would become the new center of American horse racing. 
And it would be the descendants of slaves who would shine as the new stars of horse racing. Black jockeys like Isaac Murphy and Oliver Lewis, Jimmy Winkfield, these were black men who became, for a time, bona fide American superstars. 1875 saw the inaugural running of the Kentucky Derby. 13 of the 15 jockeys in that race were African American. Black jockeys, they won 15 of the first 28 Kentucky Derbies. But by 1905, the black jockeys would be gone. Run out of the sport by the white jockeys who resented the competition that they posed and abandoned by a nation that was becoming increasingly intolerant of interracial competition. This is American sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios. Executive produced by Katie Roan, co-produced by Casey Helmick, and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.